This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 30, October 26, 1982. In a few hours, I shall be leaving home again to go to a trial. This will be a church and state trial in the state of Iowa. These trials are increasing, and it would be a serious error on anybody's part to feel encouraged by what happened the other day in Nebraska. Because of public protest, Pastor Everett Sullivan was released from jail. However, uh, that was because so much national attention was focused on Sullivan. The protests mounted from all over the country. At the same time, however, Nebraska is planning to take two other churches into court, and in the second instance, it has filed charges of contributing to the delinquency of their minor children against every parent who has a child in that school. They plan to take the children away from the parents and put them in foster homes. This is not the first time this kind of trial has taken place. But the fact that the state is not backing down in the slightest, but is simply doing what is necessary to deflect publicity, should be noted. The situation is critical all over the country. Next month, I am scheduled for a couple of other cases. Meanwhile, it is interesting to see how even the attorneys are becoming disillusioned with so many of these courts, and especially the federal courts, and some states, the state courts as well. This morning, a governor whose name I think everyone here would recognize, but who is a newcomer to this type of trial, told me with regard to a forthcoming trial in a federal court that he did not expect much. He said, remember, these courts go in terms of precedent set by the U.S. Supreme Court. And what can you expect from a court that sentences 1,200,000 unborn babies to death every year? The present court is unprecedented in the evil it has committed. The Warren Court was nothing compared to the Burger Court. So, we need to pray it's going to take a miracle of God and a great deal of aroused public sentiment to turn the situation around. Now, this brings me to something which seems totally unrelated to what I've just been talking about. We've had a great deal on the papers lately and on television news about the extra-strength Tylenol and the fact that these have been laced with cyanide. This morning's news reported another such case, also a case where Excedrin was found to be laced with poison. A few days ago, a bottle of 7-Up was found to be laced with bleach and so on. Numerous cases like this appearing. What is behind all this? Well, let's 
leave that unanswered for a moment and turn to something which points us in the right direction. And by the way, I'm going to deal with this entire subject at great length sometime, possibly in a position paper or elsewhere. I read to you last week from Andrea Malrick, Notes of a Revolutionary. I'm going to turn to something by him again. Uh, Amalric describes his uh, trip to prison or to the prison camp. And I quote, On the two-day trip to Sverdlovsk, I occupied a private compartment, or to be more precise, a private cell in a Stolipin car. Somewhere along the way, a Mordavian woman, young, very fat, and with a gloomy expression on her face, was put into the cell next to mine. She had been convicted of setting fire to a warehouse. I thought she had probably been working there as a clerk and had torched the place in order to cover up a deficit in the books. I was mistaken. I did it because life was so hard, she said. There was nothing to eat. The stores were empty. The pay was low, and you couldn't say a word to the bosses. This was my first encounter with a traditional Russian red rooster. From time to time... Fires due to spontaneous combustion break out as a challenge to social injustice. It may well be that the fires that broke out in Moscow in 1977 were the work of such arsonists, unquote. Well, the red rooster in Russia is someone who is very common. He is a person who is weary of the whole business, feels no hope, is angry at the system, and he decides to do his bit to destroy it. He starts a fire. He has no thought of whom he may hurt in the process. His one concern is to lash out against an evil order. Most of the people who are red roosters, whether they be male or female, are commonly lower class. They are not capable of an articulate, developed protest. They simply lash out savagely, destructively, and murderously at the system. Well, in 1950-something, a psychologist or psychiatrist, I forget which he was, Dr. Robert Lindner, wrote a book entitled Rebels Without a Cause. The book was both praised and very much criticized in its day. The jargon and the framework and all, we don't have to pay any attention to. But the point he made was very important, namely, that we were seeing something new. Rebels who had no cause, who committed senseless acts of murder, of violence, of arson, of destruction, whatever the case may be, just because everything was 
senseless and meaningless to them. And therefore they contributed to the general senselessness and meaninglessness of the world around them by their own act of destruction. Now I submit that what we have been seeing is probably related to the same thing. We're going to see more such insanity. Wherever I go, I am told of instances of this kind of thing. Causeless crime. Causeless acts of violence. Hoodlums or young people or elderly sometimes who totally unprovoked lash out with murderous violence against something or someone. I believe this and the phenomenon of red roosters is related. The red roosters are simply saying it's all senseless and I'm going to bring it down. And the same rebels without a cause here having no faith in anything, are determined to destroy. There is no solution to this given the present temper of things because day by day what happens in Washington and in state capitals increases the sense of despair, meaninglessness, and helplessness on the part of the people. Only a return to Christian faith and Christian reconstruction in every area of life and thought can alter that tendency. I submit that what we are seeing is only going to increase. We had it a few years ago in the airline hijacking. By taking precautions, that has been reduced almost the disappearing point. I'm sure now with all kinds of safety sealers on aspirin and Tylenol and Excedrin caps, the same thing will happen there. However, this tendency will reveal itself elsewhere. So it isn't being solved by these precautionary moves. The precautionary moves are a necessity, let me say, an absolute necessity. But the root cause must be dealt with, and that is not being considered. Now I want to go to another subject that I want to return to at a future date and write more about. But I've been doing some reading lately on the subject of conservation. Everybody is for conservation in some sense, but very, very few realize what a tremendous force for evil conservation has been in human history. Now, that may come as a shock because conservation is such a good thing. Well, that's precisely why it becomes a force for evil. Evil likes to masquerade under good. A few years ago, I was uh, at the state capitol, and I was going to speak after the adjournment at about one thirty, two o'clock, 
to a group of the state senators, and I was given the privilege of the floor and sat down among the senators. The afternoon session was supposed to last about five or ten minutes because there was one bill and the passage of it was assumed to be uh, just a matter of form. Well, the bill was uh, to receive and appropriate to designated causes $26 million for narcotic education. It was federal money, so it was nothing out of the pockets uh, directly of California taxpayers. But State Senator Bill Richardson got up and said, look at these groups that are receiving this $26 million. They're precisely the kind of people that we don't want to get anything. They are almost certainly hopheads. They represent every foul ball, hippie, leftist cause imaginable. The objection of several was, but if we vote against a bill that is labeled narcotic education, how will we look back home? Well, there was a great deal of debate, and it was obvious everyone there virtually except the senator who introduced the bill had very serious qualms about the bill, but they were worried about what it would look like to vote against a bill labeled narcotic education appropriation. As it developed, only two senators voted against it, Richardson and Stahl. However, the minute it came up for a vote, most of the senators scattered they didn't want to be a part of the record on that bill. It was so obviously bad, and the groups receiving the funds were so obviously bad. And so when it came time for, to vote, there was an empty Senate chamber. And the president of the Senate, Lieutenant Governor sent out the sergeant-at-arms to round up and bring everybody in one by one to vote for that money so that California could get its $26 million. Now, that's what I mean. The greater the evil, the nicer the label. If you look at the foul ball bills in Congress these days. They have conservation labels. They have uh, helping the poor labels. They have anti-discrimination labels. Everything that it is assumed everybody will be for. Evil usually comes to us disguised as good. And conservation historically from ancient times has been a means of tremendous oppression. Well, I've been dipping into the subject of conservation. It's interesting the hue and cry we've had for more than a century that within a few years all our natural resources and our forests were going to disappear. And they haven't yet. 
In fact, the large-scale lumber companies intend to stay in business indefinitely, and they have excellent policies of reforestation. Well, very few people are aware of the fact that conservation was an issue in Magna Carta. When the barons of England cornered King John and wrested Magna Carta from him, one of the key aspects of that measure was the royal policy of conservation. From William the Conqueror on through King John, conservation was a major issue in England because what happened very early, within a few years after William the Conqueror, was that one-fourth of England was set aside as a royal forest. One-fourth of England. Now, this did not include in its entirety forest lands. In some cases, an entire county with the towns, the villages, and the farms were included in the royal forest. This meant, therefore, that everyone in that area was subject to a tax above and over all other tax. It meant also that they could not hunt or kill the deer that came in and destroyed their fields, their farms. After all, the king liked to hunt, and even those who did know hunting were interested in preserving the royal deer. That sounded noble, you know. After all, deer have always been popular with sentimentalists who have no idea of the destruction they can cause in farm areas. But the punishments were savage. They included in their extreme form emasculation, that is, castration, and execution. And this prevailed for a number of years. Some of the kings, like William Rufus, were especially savage. Let me read one... Uh, section. This is from Charles R. Young, The Royal Forests of Medieval England, a scholarly work published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 1979, part of the Middle Ages series. And I quote, William Rufus saw the possibility of using forest laws as an instrument for other purposes and protection of hunting as shown by an incident related by the chronicler Edmer, as a method of getting the remaining wealth of the old English nobility. The king falsely accused some fifty men of taking the king's deer and had them brought summarily to trial on this charge. The chronicler is vague about what court was used to try them, but when they denied the charge, they were forced to undergo the ordeal of hot iron as a method of proof. We are told that God preserved the hands of all the accused from being burned and thus made clear their innocence. To this setback, the king responded, What is this? God, a just judge? Perish the man who after this believes so. For the future, by this and that I swear it, 
Answer shall be made to my judgment, not to God's, which inclines to one side or the other an answer to each man's prayer. Unquote. Now, that tells you what was happening and why the nobles of England were so concerned, the barons, in cornering King John, who was far from the worst in this matter. In fact, things were somewhat easier under Richard the Lionhearted and King John, not because they were uh, generous, but because, having need of money, they sold off some of the forest privileges in order to raise funds. However, when that type of thing took place, there was no hesitancy about revoking the privilege when they needed more money. At one point, these kings also, at every opportunity, trampled on the freedom of the church. They would not allow the church any freedom in the use of the woodlands that it had. And as a result, uh, a great deal of trouble developed here. At one point, the clergy of England were so incensed when a papal legate conceded to the crown some authority over the uh, farm and forest areas owned by um, monasteries that the church rose up in wrath and called the legate an agent of Satan. One thing was clear, and this sounds like today. Animals were more important than people, and trees were more important to people in terms of the royal policy. In fact, one uh, satirical writer, writer Nigel Warricker, uh, wrote about it in a poem of 1180, and I quote, And man, though in his maker's image made, who all that is created, yet is paid by princes less regard than beasts of earth. I, all our race, is held of lesser worth. How many are hanged on cruel gallow trees for taking flesh of beasts? More savagely Sicilian tyrants could not well ordain than that for slaying beasts a man be slain. The forest laws were definitely a respecter of persons. That is, they had more respect for animals than for persons. And the result was a very long and bitter struggle until the civil wars in England and a change in the economy gave some relief. Now, we have the same problem today. In the name of conservation, every year we see the takeover of more and more private property by state and federal agencies. Under Watts, and this does not mean I agree with him on everything, there has been a diminution of this on the federal level, but there has been no cessation of this on the state level in many states. So we have a serious problem. Conservation is an excuse 
for the extension of state power. And if you are under the illusion that uh, federal and state-owned forests get protection, think again, study the subject a bit. When property is taken over by the state or federal government, it is then under a commission and rarely, if ever, is there anything in the press about what these commissions do. Now, I submit that in California, the man who is the chairman of the federal commission controlling federal lands in California is more powerful than the governor of California. The governor of California is under the eye of the press and the public at all times. But whoever knows what the federal commissioner does or what his name is, and he controls over 40% of the state. Now consider one fact. If he lets out grazing contracts on those federal lands. Whoever gets those contracts or whoever that one individual or organization is, they're the biggest cattlemen west of Texas. Now, I won't tell you who has such contracts, but it's a very interesting story. It's a part of the tremendous power game that very few people know about that is a part of the uh, conservation game. It's a racket, and you had better know it. I do not believe there has ever been an investigation of the various organizations created by the federal government that handle the national forests, and for that matter, any investigation of state forests. Well, now on to something else. Captain Blakey sent me a copy of the uh, Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, October 19, 1982. On the front page, an article about Process Theology by John Dart, God's Power Over Evil Questioned. And the gist of the article is very interesting. It is not a new development, although Dart seems to think so. It's been with us again and again in history, and it has been around at least since the 20s and 30s. In fact, one of the key figures he names, Charles Hartshorn, uh, was a a thinker at the University of Chicago whom I read back in the 30s and 40s. For example, one of the men, ministers and rabbis, quoted is a rabbi Kushner of Natick, Massachusetts, who says, I can worship a God who hates suffering but cannot eliminate it more easily than I can worship a God who chooses to make children suffer and die. 
And the gist of the whole article, which is a very long one and occupies portions of three pages, is that a God who is omnipotent cannot be worshipped because such a God is permitting evil. Now, uh, of course, the author admits that such a theory con contradicts the Bible, which is very clear about the omnipotence of God. But the point is, uh, they feel that God has to be reduced to someone who is struggling against all this. It's too powerful for him now, but little by little, maybe he will win the battle against evil. And one of the means he uses is love. So hopefully, let's work together for God to overcome evil. Well... As I say, this kind of thinking is not new. It did develop in the later Middle Ages, and it has developed before that and since then. What happens? You deny that God is omnipotent, and you make evil omnipotent. And this is exactly what these process theologians have done. So you then have a rise of Satanism. The medieval uh, cults, occult groups, witchcraft movement and all, represented a belief in the omnipotence of evil. As a result, a tremendous outbreak of all kinds of evils, human sacrifice, cannibalism, poisoning, which of course is what a witch is, a poisoner, began to abound in the late Middle Ages and in the Renaissance and for some time thereafter. And we have seen a revival of the same kind of thing in recent years. And why not? It's logical. If evil is omnipotent and God is not, a great many people are going to conclude logically that you'd better worship the devil that you'd better line up with evil if you want to be on the winning side. As a result, when you have that kind of situation, which you have again, you have a dangerous moment in civilization. Let me add that those people whose eschatologies are geared to defeat and who say there's no victory against evil except to be raptured out of this world and then for God to end the whole business, are also contributing to the same problem. We cannot see evil as omnipotent or as victorious at all. We have to see God as omnipotent and using even evil to bring forth good. As a matter of fact, the Gospels make it clear, John in particular, that at the greatest moment of triumph of Satan and the powers of darkness, when they sentenced Jesus Christ to death, they knew not that it was in fulfillment of Scripture, that thereby the greatest good was going to be accomplished, the atonement the triumph of our Lord, the last Adam, over sin and death. 
and our triumph over sin and death in and through him. This is a totally different perspective. It is an eschatology of victory. It is geared to conquest. A very, very different kind of worldview. Well, one of the books I read just the other day, I got because some of the recent biographies of Oliver Cromwell, including uh, Antonia Fraser's book, which has much to con- uh, commend it, do an injustice to Cromwell in their talk about his rich and wealthy court. This scholar, Roy Sherwood, who is at uh, Sydney Sussex College, Cambridge, and an expert in the 17th century, has written a book on the court of Oliver Cromwell, This was published by Kroom Helm in London in 1977. Now, he points out that uh, the Parliament and the English people wanted some kind of court. So, Cromwell did maintain a court and they provided him with one of the royal residences. However, he gives a very detailed, and it's a pedestrian account, very specific, full of facts, figures, all kinds of data, that Cromwell's court was a very economical one, very wisely managed, respectful of tax funds, and in every respect, a well-run establishment. But this is interesting. Uh, the physician George Bate was present there and had close contact with the court of Cromwell, although a very intense royalist. After the Restoration, Bate wrote the following in his account of those years. And I quote, To give the devil, Cromwell, his due, he restored justice, as well distributive as commutative, almost to its ancient dignity and splendor. The judges, without covetousness, discharging their duties according to law and equity. And the laws, unless some few that particularly concerned Cromwell, having full and free course in all courts without hindrance or delay, Men's manners also, at least outwardly, seem to be reformed to the better, whether by really subtracting the fuel of luxury or through fear of the ancient laws now revived and put in execution. His own court also was regulated according to a severe discipline. Here no drunkard nor whoremonger nor any guilty of bribery was to be found without severe punishment. Trade began again to prosper and, in a word, gentle peace to flourish all over England." Quite an interesting 
tribute, is it not, from someone who was very hostile to Cromwell. Well, now I'd like to read something which one of the people on our mailing list sent in, the Reverend Alex Peter Koval, who has since 1967 uh, been in the Iron Curtain countries and able to witness to the people there repeatedly and has preached across uh, Russia and Siberia. He is pastor of the First Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Chesterfield, South Carolina. And he says, It is a tragedy that across that uh, the Christians in the affluent West cannot see the same paralyzing, persecuting forces sweeping across our land. One of these days we will awaken to the fact that we American Christians will need to learn from Russian believers how to live under a totalitarian anti-Christian society. Now, I'd like to read from his account of his trip to Siberia. Nikolai, a young man we met in Siberia, had no Bible. But even all the preachers and deacons don't have one. For a small Russian New Testament, they will gladly give 125 rubles, a whole month's wages. That's about 150 in U.S. currency. But it means all their earnings for a whole month. That is, if, if they can find a New Testament. We had just met with the believers for a church service in one of the homes. At the close of the service, Nikolai, with a big smile on his face, drew me aside and said softly, Brother Petrovich, would you possibly have something for me? What do you wish, I answered. Do you have a Bible for me, he said, smiling with expectation. Apologetically, I told him, I have no more Bibles to give. Could you possibly have one in English, he said. What would he do with an English Bible, I thought. He must have seen the wonder in my face and said, I had a course in English in school, and if I had an English Bible, I would study the language until I could read it fluently. In my coat pocket was a New Testament I have used for twenty-five years. It was beautifully bound in leather with my name stamped in gold. I have treasured it and could not think of being without it especially since we had two more months of traveling among the churches. The New Testament was a part of me, and I never thought of giving it up. I couldn't give it up. The feeling that came over me was that of being confronted by a hungry man asking if I had any bread to share. Painfully, I explained to him that I had only this one English New Testament and that I would need it during the remaining months of travel. I expected to see a sad countenance and a disheartened, discouraged young man. But he just looked at me with that same expectation and warm-hearted smile, almost as if I had said I would give him one tomorrow. That night, back at our hotel, I explained to my wife, Chris, all that had taken place at the meeting, since she doesn't understand Russian. Do you remember I said the young man with a scar on his cheek? She remembered him well. He asked me for something special, and I told him of 
Our, I told her of our conversation and how I regretted I could not give him my little New Testament. After discussing it for a while, Chris said to me, Do you realize this young man has never had a Bible, and by the law of averages, he never will have one? Unless someone comes like us from America and smuggles one in, there is no way he can get a Bible. Since we are the only Christians in all these years to visit them, the chances of someone bringing him a Bible is next to impossible. The thought hit me like a thunderbolt. Once in a lifetime, this young man could ask for a Bible, and I did not give it to him. She continued, Back home you could get all the New Testaments you desire, and you could not be without it for a few months. Uh, while Nicolay will be without a Bible probably all his life. On top of that, she continued, we leave for the airport in the morning and we will never see Nikolai again. The conviction that swept through us brought us to our knees in tears. How selfish we are, how self-centered, how far we miss the mark. Let every man look not on his own things, but also on the things of others. We confessed our guilt, asked for forgiveness, and prayed for Nikolai, that God would somehow answer his prayer for a Bible. There was more to it than just a Bible for a young man. As a child, Nikolai had learned of Christ from his mother and his grandmother. The joy of the Lord radiated through him. His winsome personality, his love of the Lord and his word, and his courage to live for Christ all demonstrated the gift of a preacher. The more I thought of the potential in Nikolai, the more I realized what a mistake I had made. What does a man need to preach? A seminary training? A library of Bible helps and commentaries? What if none of these are available? There were none of these institutions or helps when the Christian church had its beginning in the book of Acts. I'll skip over some. The next morning we left for the airport and the SOF flight that would take us to our next stop in Siberia. After driving some 20 kilometers, we stopped at a village carved out of the Tagar Forest. We got out to take some pictures of the wooden houses and the quaint decorations. These privately built houses of one or two rooms were on land rented from the government. The wooden fence enclosed a wall-to-wall -wall garden. A glass enclosure served as a greenhouse, for all plants had to be started inside or they would not mature before the winter uh, comes again. As we walked the wooden sidewalks, we took pictures of the carvings and the color, trying so desperately to uh, relive uh, the monotonous, uh, uh, monotonously drab a village. It was almost deserted, with only an occasional babushka or grandmother. Everyone else was at work or school. We did not notice the young man until he was almost upon us. We recognized him immediately by the broad smile and the happiness that shone in his face. In typical Russian style, we embraced and kissed each other on both cheeks. I said, I have something for you. As my hand reached for the top pocket in my jacket, where that precious New Testament had been my companion for the past twenty-five years, and I placed it in Nikolai's hand. He quickly hid it inside his jacket, lest someone see him taking something from a foreigner, still smiling that beautiful smile. It was a miracle. Normally, Nikolai is working. 
This was an unexpected day off. It was not the village of his home. He was just passing through to get something, but it was more than a coincidence that our paths crossed again. The God who had directed our course halfway around the world could also on that last day direct our paths to meet once more in that nameless village in the taiga forest of Siberia so that a young Timothy might have the word of God and prepare to preach. I am still haunted by that smile as if he is saying, I knew you would give me that Bible. His faith to believe that once in a lifetime he could have a copy of the word of God as his very own. Right now we believe that someday, somehow, we are going back to that same little village in Siberia. We are going to find Nikolai and bring him a Russian Bible so that he can study and teach in his own tongue. I'd like to read a little more from what uh, Pastor Koval wrote. This is about another area in Siberia. He tried to find a church, and of course, in Siberia, there are none. Quoting now from Pastor Koval's account, I knew that even though the Christians are a discriminated against and persecuted minority in the USSR, still there are, in almost every city and town, groups that meet to worship and have fellowship in the Word of God. Inquiring of the whereabouts of believers can get one in trouble with the police. But after praying for guidance, I felt led to ask one of the official guides for help. Zenia was born here and knew the area well. She was also a member of the party. She said to me, wait a moment, and went into an inner office and was gone for some time. I paced the hotel lobby, wondering if I had done the right thing. When she returned, she slipped a piece of paper into my hand and whispered, There are no churches, but this is the address of a person who can tell you where the believers are meeting. She got the address of the man from the police files. We got a driver to taxi us over some rough roads through twenty miles of the Taiga Forest. Breaking out into a clearing, we came upon a small village of wooden houses and muddy streets. It had been raining for three days, and the streets were a mass of mud, ruts and holes filled with water. Our first driver barely got out of the slippery mess. The next time we went down there, the driver refused to drive up to the house, so we sloshed through the sticky red mud for two blocks. The village reminds one of the descriptions of village life and the stories of Russian writers like Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and Pushkin. Each little house was surrounded by a high fence. Outside in the street were huge logs waiting to be cut and split, then added to the already huge piles of kindling wood stacked around the house. As we entered the house, we stepped into a tiny area that served as a kitchen. On either side of us were coats and wraps, indescribably shabby and old, and directly below, some forty pairs of muddied boots and shoes. The people had taken off their shoes upon entering the house, although it wouldn't have made too much of a difference. They are so busy in the factories in preparing for winter and survival, they do not have much time for house cleaning. Opposite us was a doorway from which came the sound of many voices. 
As we parted the cotton sheet that weaved as a curtain, we saw some thirty-five people on their knees, each one praying audibly, with voices full of emotion and tears. This was the prayer time before the actual service began. As the prayer time ended, the people stood up. Seeing us for the first time, their tear-stained faces looked at us with wide-eyed fear. For some ten years they had been meeting as a church in homes. It was illegal, and they had endured many threats, arrests, and beatings. From their bitterly persecuted past, their faces reflected their questions. Who are you? Why are you here? Why, what do you want with us? We had already met the pastor, a layman who daily labored as a logger, and assured him that we were there in the name of Christ. He led me to the other side of the room, where we sat behind a little table with the deacons on either side of us. The narrow wooden benches without backs that crowded the room were all filled. People stood along the walls and in the doorway. There were children there, although the law prohibits anyone under 18 years of age to be under religious instruction in the home, in the school, or in the church. As the hymns were announced, everyone waited for a young woman in the front row to find the right pitch and start the song. Then they all joined in the singing from memory, and they always sing all the verses. There were only three or four hymn books, well-worn and one copied by hand. These books had no music, only words. They have no trained pastors. Bibles are scarce, and commentaries and other helps are unknown. The atmosphere is one of being transformed suddenly into the first century and experiencing a visit to the churches in the book of Acts. They have the ingredients of the early church, an occasional Bible, and the Holy Spirit. They have the basics. One Bible lay on the table. Two or three of the men would read several verses and make some comments with exhortation to godly living and witness. One mother stood up and recited a long poem with feeling and conviction. They requested my wife to give her testimony and for me to translate it, that it was a praying that moved one to tears, so earnest, so personal. So real was the presence of God to them that they were as children before a knowing Father who knew their fault. They prayed audibly, unconscious of others around them, in intimate conversation with God. They confessed their weaknesses their failure to be good witnesses, their petitions to God for loved ones and family members, their prayers for other believers all over the world, and their longing for the soon return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They asked me to preach in Russian and gave me a good part of the two-hour service. At the close of the meeting, the pastor said, How many of you would like to come back tomorrow night if our brother can be with us? We all agreed to meet again on Monday night. Then there was another announcement from the pastor. Don't forget as you leave, only two go out at a time. As soon as they are out of sight, the next two can leave. So it was, lest the neighbors become suspicious of a group of people meeting in a home, notify the police, and bring the authorities down upon them. Next night we discovered the meeting was held in another house so as not to arouse suspicion among the neighbors. 
During the night, the men had secretly carried the benches to another home, and via the grapevine all the believers were informed. On this night there was only one song and one prayer, and the entire two hours were turned over to me to teach and to preach. How their hungry souls drank in the Word of God. Then they asked questions. They wanted to know where we had traveled. How are the believers doing in other parts of the world, in America, in South America, in Israel? When I concluded the two-hour discourse, the meeting ended with a time of prayer. Those who could in the crowded room got down on their knees. It was a time of thanksgiving and praise to God and an emotional experience I shall never forget. They asked God to forgive them for their complaining spirit and their selfishness and always asking God to do something for them. They were so humbled as they mingled tears and gratitude and confession. The mystery and miracle of why we were there and why we had found them in the first place was revealed in the closing words of their prayers. We were completely broken down and in tears when we heard them pray, Thank you, Lord, for being so good to us. We are so unworthy, yet you showed us how much you love us. And all these years we have never had another believer visit us, but Lord, you sent us two of your messengers from halfway around the world to show us how much you love us. Well, that is the account of the Reverend Alexis Peter Koval of the First Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Chesterfield, South Carolina. A very moving account of his experience halfway around the world in Siberia. Well, our time is running out. We have just a few minutes left, and I had other things planned for which there is now no time. But I'd like to share with you something in a lighter vein. I'm very partial to Proverbs. I like to pick up books of Proverbs from all over the world because in Proverbs we have the distillation of the experience and the wisdom of a people. This book that I have, Speak to the Winds, by Kofi Asari Optgu, gives us the Proverbs of Ghana, Africa. And I'll just share a very few with you. Well, let's start off here. If you travel with fraud, you may reach your destination, but will be unable to return. If you sow falsehood, you reap deceit. One who refuses to obey cannot command. Even the greatest bird must come down from the sky to find a tree to roost upon. One wicked person in a state hurts others. 
If you trample on another person's property and looking for your own, you will never find your own. If you build a poor wooden bridge across the river, it never rots until you have to cross it yourself. There are no gods to support a lazy person. One's greatest support is one's own arm. Those who are the cause of their own troubles never come to the end of them. But those who are troubled by others do. Goodness is hidden but eventually appears. When virtue founds a town, the town grows and lasts long. To possess virtue is better than to own gold. If your parents take care of you until you finish teething, you must also take care of them when they lose their teeth. When the right hand washes the left and the left hand washes the right, then both hands will be clean. To till the land is to love oneself. The string can be useful until a rope can be found. To own only a few things is better than to be a thief. Well, there are a number of others, but one or two more I'm looking for that are particularly good. This I like. People are the home. If the mouse were the size of a cow, it would be the cat's slave nevertheless. Well, let's see, there's one more I want before I finish. Uh, this is choice on power and how to handle it. Power must be handled in the manner of holding an egg in the hand. If you hold it too firmly, it rakes. If you hold it too loosely, it drops. This one I'll end with. The hen knows when it is dawn, but she leaves the crowing to the cock. <laughs> That's a good one on the difference between male and female. Well, our time is up. I've enjoyed this, and uh, as usual, I hate to see the time come to an end. I will be looking forward to our next time together in two weeks. Meanwhile, be in prayer for the persecuted Christians across the country. Thank you.